This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Three and four as we were singing that song, what a prayer, that we would come to the Pentateuch this morning and we would see the glory of of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 3, it's incredible Paul's argument here. He says that that the church in Corinth was the letter of Christ in chapter 3 verse 3 cared for him written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone like the 10 commandments, but on tablets of the human heart. And then he goes on to talk about verse 13, we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face but instead the veil's removed, verse 17, verse 16, and because, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, and we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Well, what is that glory? He goes on in chapter 4 to say that the glory in verse 4 is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Think about this. That all of the Old Testament and all of the shadows and all of the types that are fulfilled in Christ, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, even the Ten Commandments written on stone are a shadow of the New Covenant because now the law has been written on the human heart and the veil's taken away, and what we see by faith is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. This is good news, and this is what Moses is getting at, and I hope to show you in the Pentateuch. And so what have we been doing these past five, six weeks? What, am I, what have I been trying to do to you as I've been preaching? Well, there's a discipline called biblical theology, and it's not the opposite of unbiblical theology. It's, it's this idea of telling the story of redemptive history and seeing how all of the puzzle pieces fit in light of Christ. In fact, Dr. Stephen Wellam was at the seminary this past week, one of the premier Christ-centered scholars on the planet, and his definition is exegesis in light of the big picture. So what's the big picture? God has a plan, Ephesians 1, to sum up all things in his Son, things in heaven and things on earth, and from the very beginning, Genesis, he's promised to send a Messiah who would restore and make all things new, and as the pages of Scripture unfold, we see that this Messiah, this hero, is a son of David, yes, a son of Judah, a son of Abraham, who's a greater prophet than Moses, but he also is Yahweh himself who is king, who rules over a kingdom. Well, Jesus is son of David and son of God. And so when we come back to the Pentateuch and we we go back to this last book of uh, the Pentateuch, the book of Moses, we still have to see it in light of it being one book with one purpose. We have it in our English Bibles as five books, but Moses had one purpose and, and it's there at the bottom of your notes. Paul in Galatians 3 is explaining this. He's saying that there's a relationship between the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, Paul's gospel, and the new covenant that's promised 
in Deuteronomy 30. Paul argues in chapter 3 that the old covenant is powerless, it's temporary, it's, it curses those who don't obey it properly, it's based on, on doing and not believing, that Christ himself must intervene and redeem from the curse of the law, and it was never designed to secure righteousness or inheritance or produce life in the people. Instead, what does it do? It brings transgression. Now the question we have to ask is, is this what Moses had in mind when he wrote the Pentateuch? And I think the answer is yes. Paul concludes in those verses, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And what I hope to show you this morning is Paul's argument in those verses holds true to Moses' argument in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy in particular. So let's turn back to Deuteronomy. And there in chapter 1, it's really helpful to see at the very beginning in verse 5 that Moses, this isn't a sort of uh, second giving of the law like a take two. This is Moses explaining all the books that came before. Verse 5, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, and then he goes on to say all these things that we're going to look at this morning. Deuteronomy is not simply a second giving of the law. It's an explanation of the law. It's a commentary on the earlier books, and it was to be Israel's guide while they lived in the land. Now, I want to I go to the end. Uh, I think this will help us put some milestones in the ground so turn over to chapter 30 and at the end of the book verses 15 and 16 in chapter 30 the Lord says this see I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. Now there's some echoes here of what was going on in Genesis. The blessings echo the garden and the blessing of, of Adam walking with God in the garden and the land obviously is tied to the garden but the curses echo the fall and the fact that sin and death has entered the world and so there's blessings and cursings and what's the solution? Well throughout Deuteronomy we're gonna see that the commandments don't provide the solution. But here back in verse 6, and you, you should underline this in your Bibles or at least call it out if you don't like to write in your Bibles, but chapter 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. You see, we're going to see in chapter 10 that God commanded them to circumcise their hearts so that they would live. But they can't do it. They can't keep the Ten Commandments, much less all the rest that are added in this book that explain the Ten Commandments. In fact, it just shuts them up under sin and exposes the reality that they're transgressors. And so God promises to do what they themselves can't do. By the end of the book, he says, I'm going to circumcise your hearts. And it's in the context we're going to see at the end of God promising a Messiah 
And so the Messiah is going to come and by the Spirit circumcise the hearts of the people, but this Messiah is God himself who's going to do it. This is a promise of Jesus. Okay, so I want you to keep that in your minds as we go through the rest of this. Back to chapter 1, verses, uh, chapters 1 to 4. So you have this Moses giving a sermon, an explanation of the law, the previous books that were given. And in chapters 1 to 3, he's basically saying, uh, chapters 1 to 4, remember the faithfulness of Yahweh. Remember the faithfulness of Yahweh. It's to the second generation. And in chapters 1 to 3, it's the goodness of the covenant maker. All of the events recorded, we've already heard these past few weeks. They were already revealed in the book of Moses. And sometimes he adds some details to fill in the gaps for the second generation. But we see here in chapter 1, the departure from Sinai. We see the appointment of the leaders for the people. In chapter 1, the spying out of the land and their subsequent rebelling against God and then their curse to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Chapter 2, they're passing through the wilderness. And I want to bring out in chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you've done. He's known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked a thing. And so this is the faithfulness of Yahweh in their midst to keep his promises even when the people are disobedient. All these years, God provides for his children. Well, then it goes on in chapter 2 to talk about the conquest of this land, uh, Sihon and Og. The, sometimes the commentators call it the Transjordan. It's the land right next to the Jordan where Reuben and Gad, they inherit this in chapter 3 when they conquer those first enemies in the land. And then in chapter 3, Joshua replaces Moses. But I want to point out in chapter 3, throughout, it's not Moses or Joshua that's the hero. It's, it's God. Verse 27 of chapter 3. He tells Moses, Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west and the north and the south and the east and see it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan, if you remember last week, Moses disobeyed God and died under the law and couldn't enter into the promised land, and yet God in his mercy, the God who revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33 and 34 and revealed his name as the gracious and compassionate one, one last act of mercy to Moses and says, you can see the land. Go up to the top of this mountain and look at it. Well, Joshua replaces Moses in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, the people are commanded to respond in obedient worship. So this act of remembering who God is and what He's done and how He's been faithful leads the people to respond in obedient worship in chapter 4. Verse 23, for example. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and made yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God has a concern for his glory. He's jealous for it. And in chapter 4, he tells the people, you're going to draw near to me and worship me the way I commanded you as we heard in Leviticus, be holy for I'm holy. And yet this old covenant this was not the end. This was not the ultimate. In fact, this chapter is quoted in Hebrews 12. 
I don't know if you remember this, but in verse 28, the author of Hebrews, as he, as he reminds us that we don't come to Mount Sinai anymore, we come to the new Jerusalem. We don't come with fear and trembling to the mountain that shakes and the fire and the lightning. We come to the, to the heavenly city whose citizens are enrolled in heaven to the firstborn assembly. We come with better promises. And then he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not like Mount Sinai that shakes. The new Jerusalem cannot be shaken. So let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so the author of Hebrews understands all of this was insufficient to save and what Jesus has brought is better because guess what? He's the king and his kingdom is never shaken. And he's bringing in worship that's acceptable. More on that in a little bit. So this is a reminder of God's great mercy. When Israel returns to the Lord, the Lord will return them to the promised land of their fathers. Look at verse 29 of chapter 4. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. You will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart and all your soul. And when you're in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. So here Moses is saying is, he's already anticipating you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to keep this law, and you're going to be scattered to the four winds, but God is compassionate, and he doesn't forget his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so when he regathers you, he's going to be compassionate, and you're going to seek him with all your heart. This emphasis on the heart, which in Deuteronomy 30 says God's going to circumcise your heart so that you will love him. Well, this is the promise that's run throughout all of the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah 31, the way he's going to do it is he's going to write the law of God on their hearts. So no one will have to teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord anymore. From the least to the greatest of them, they'll all know the Lord. Ezekiel 36, he's going to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. This is what God has been promising is going to happen through the Messiah and the pouring out of the Spirit. So when Jesus comes and he says, you must be born from above or you cannot see the kingdom of heaven to Nicodemus in John 3, this is what he's talking about. Well, in back to Deuteronomy, chapters 4 to 11 then, as Moses is saying, remember the faithfulness of God, chapters 1 to 4, he goes on to say, this God is the one of loyal love. And that's in your notes there. This idea of loyal love is the Hebrew word hesed. Covenant keeping, steadfast love. God is faithful to his promises. He keeps his word because it's rooted in his character and he cannot change. And if anyone was going to test it, it would have been Israel in the wilderness. They tested and tried him for 40 years. And he's still the gracious and compassionate one. And so you have this narrative, chapter 4 and 5, this transition from the history to the sermon that Moses is giving. The covenant is mentioned in chapter 5 at Mount Sinai. It's still in force for the second generation. And then in chapter 5, let's read this together because it's going to set the stage for the rest of the book. Verse 6, this is the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. That's what the Egyptians did. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness, that's the word has said, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. It sounds like how you give instructions to your children, you know, that when they're like, how do I weasel out of this, right? Well, you said, you didn't say, don't kick my brother. You only said, don't hit my brother. He's being very clear. This is what the Sabbath is. You shall remember, verse 15, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged. It may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Ten Commandments given. And this is the second time they've been given and reiterated. And now what Moses is going to do from, well, he has a little more of introduction but by the time he gets to chapters 12 to 28, what he's doing is explaining how the Ten Commandments look in the land. And so we'll walk through that. I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap too. I don't have time to go in detail to show you everything. So we're going to cover the first four kind of quickly. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Ironically, I'm going to spend the most time on because this is where we see Christ most visibly. And this is what I'm trying to show you in regard to this future prophet, priest, and king that's promised. And then the commandments 6 to 10, I'm going to rush through again like a drink from a fire hose. And uh, don't try to write it all down. You know, imagine listening to this is difficult enough. Imagine trying to keep it. This is just the burden of the law. But I want to rush to the end, not rush. I want to get to the end so that we see what Moses is getting at, that there is coming a Messiah, a hero, a greater prophet than him who's going to do what the people could never do. He's going to, by the Spirit, circumcise their hearts and restore what was lost in the garden. So that's where we're headed. So the goal of the law then is Moses is still introducing in chapters 6 to 11, this law, he says chapter 6. The whole goal of it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. In fact, we hear the Shema here. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Wholehearted, loving worship of Yahweh. You see, and the fear that he's talking about here is a fear that produces obedience, and what we call it is love. 
It's a fear that longs to do the will of God and produces worship in verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. Chapter 7, then you're going to separate from the gods of the other nations because after all, Israel is Yahweh's treasured possession. Chapter 7, verse 6. And then he reminds them, do not forget the Lord your God, chapter 8. And at the end of chapter 8, verses 11 to 20, he says, and here is the Achilles heel that will cause you to forget. He says it's pride. Pride leads to the worship of other idols and forgetting God. And he gives examples. He says, you're going to get in the land and you're going to think, hey, I did this. It's great. Flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to kick back and enjoy my frosty beverage along the banks of the river, and I'm going to forget God because I'm going to think I'm the one who accomplished this. Moses warns him. And then he gives illustrations from Israel's past saying, oh, remember that you already did forget God in the past. Do you remember that golden calf, chapter 9? Yeah, that didn't go so well. That wasn't such a good idea. He says, yeah, Moses got so angry that he broke the first set of Ten Commandments and had to make a second set. And then he goes on at the end of chapter 9, chapter 10 to mention that, um, oh yeah, and even though you forgot God at Mount Sinai and he threatened to nuke you and wipe you off the planet because he's the gracious and compassionate one, he let you walk away from Mount Sinai under the direction of Moses. And so Moses is appealing to them to remember, oh yeah, we've already been down this road before and we're the second generation and he says, chapter 10, so therefore fear the Lord. And then here in 10.16 is where we get this command where he says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Now he's giving the command to the second generation and the reality is they're not going to keep it, nor are they able to keep it. And by the end of his sermon, he says, Deuteronomy 30, God is going to circumcise your hearts so that you live. This is the hope. You see, because this is the revelation of the gospel. The law brings a curse, Galatians 3 says, and cursed is everyone who tries to abide by it because we can't keep it. And so the only hope we have is not in keeping the law, but in the grace and favor and mercy of another. Moses is laying this out for the people. And he says in chapter 11, in summary, Love God and obey His commands. Either Israel must obey the will of God and love Him with all their heart, or they cannot continue to enjoy His blessings. Now, the reality is, unless the Spirit of God is poured out in the heart of circumcised, they won't love Him and they'll die. And so again, back to chapter 30, this is the milestone. This is the, the post we want to hang on is, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you'll live and you'll love Him and you'll worship him. And this is what all the New Testament speaks of. This new covenant where God, through the incarnation, death, burial, resurrection of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, and the subsequent pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, seals us as a down payment and pledge of our inheritance. He's the one who comes to dwell in us to change our hearts so that we're born from above, so that the worship is no longer 
in Jerusalem, in the desert, in the tabernacle. It is now here in the people of God, his glory dwelling with us. So this life of worship in the land, in your notes, the third point, chapters 12 to 16, what Moses covers here is an elaboration of the commandments one through four. And he says, this is what a life of worship in the land looks like. In chapters 12 and 13, he's explaining the first two commandments, have no other gods before me and make no graven images. So in chapter 12, verse five, he says, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come, anticipating Jerusalem. At this time, they're still, they got the portable temple in the, in the, ta- you know, the tabernacle through the wilderness, but it's anticipating Jerusalem. And what does he say? God's gonna choose it. He's gonna put his name there, which means he's gonna make his habitation there, and the glory of God's gonna fill the temple. Now, these two chapters, if you read them in detail, they are not a dreary list of do's and don'ts. As we've already seen in the previous weeks, it's a way that the people of God can have full enjoyment of life with him and with each other and God in their presence. The sacrifices speak to the reality of forgiveness and the tithes and the giving were visible symbols of God's continuing provision. And in their enjoyment, two things they have to be careful about. They cannot compromise in their giving to God and in their enjoyment, they must not be selfish so that they forget the needs of others. So there's a vertical element and a horizontal element to their worship, just like with us. We, as Ephesians 5 says, we, um, or Colossians 3 is the, is the parallel, right? Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, uh, exhorting one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. So there's the horizontal encouraging one another with the word of Christ and psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and then vertically singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Biblical worship is holistic, our whole lives. We don't put worship and pleasure in different compartments. And what we're gonna see in in the book of Deuteronomy is even Israel, their feasting and partying and playing was just as much an expression of their devotion as it ought to be for us in our Sunday gathering. Jesus said in John 4, there's coming a day when neither on this mountain, talking about Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worshiped, or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, for the Father is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. What's he saying? He's saying there's coming a day when worship of the true and living God is not done on Mount Jerusalem, but will be done in the presence of his people all over the earth. And what's it characterized by? Our human spirits giving praise to God empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit given in the new covenant, John chapter three, and in the truth that we find in the gospel of Jesus of who he is and what he's done as our substitute and our savior and our Messiah, that now we have union with Christ and access to God and we can boldly approach his throne of grace with confidence and find grace and mercy to help in our time of need, Hebrews 4. This is where everything is going. So what are the responsibilities of the children of God? Well, in Deuteronomy 14 and 15, 
Moses explains the third and fourth commandment. Chapter 14, he says, basically, in explanation of do not take the Lord's name in vain, there's a list of commandments regarding the purity of the people. And in chapter 14, three things mark out God's people as different. Verse 1, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession on the face, out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. So these three things are adoption. You are sons of the Lord. Second, holiness. You're under new ownership. And so in this you find meaning and purpose. And third is election. You were chosen. You didn't deserve this salvation, Israel. It was free and unmerited and a gift to unworthy people. And all you got to do is read the Pentateuch to see that they didn't deserve it. There wasn't anything about them that made them so special. It was all about God and his character and his grace. And so he says, this is what the purity of the people looks like. And then in, in, at the end of chapter 14 and into chapter 15, this explanation or elaboration on what it means to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, the fourth commandment. In your giving, chapter 14, your tithes and your giving ought to be a reflection of your heart. In your care for the poor among you, chapter 15, that as people want to draw near to the presence of God, those who are poor, those who are the widows and the orphans and the strangers and the aliens in their midst, if you're truly wholehearted in your devotion to God and you're honoring the Sabbath to keep it holy, you're going to care for those people. You're not going to exclude them. And then he says the sacrifices that were given as a first fruit, having faith in those sacrifices, chapter 15. Then chapter 16, he mentions the feasts. This central act of remembrance, whether it's the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Weeks, what we see is a life of worship in the land that's explaining what the first four commandments look like. The tabernacle or the temple was to be the central place of worship where God draws near and has made a way to draw near for his people to draw near to him. It's worship of the Lord alone, no idolatry and apostasy permitted. And as worshipers, their responsibility was purity and giving and care for the poor and faith and sacrifices. And the festivals were to be the central act of remembrance leading to worship at the temple where God is drawn near. And what's amazing is that's not so different from what we experience. When we see that that's the pattern and that it's fulfilled in Christ, but that we have the same responsibility, we draw now... We now draw near to the presence of God in the temple, and Ephesians says we're the temple, chapter 2. His presence is in us. Our, our reflection of our worship, our life of service, is no longer bulls and goats and spilling of blood, but instead it's offering our bodies a living sacrifice, Romans 12. The fruit of our lips, Hebrews 11, which is a sacrifice of praise. Our singing, our praying, our listening to sermons, our giving. All of it is an act of worship because we are now a priesthood of believers replacing the Levitical priesthood that was here. Well, the fifth commandment is seen in chapter 16 to chapter 18. And I have it labeled the future king, priest, and prophet. 
And the first question we have to answer is, how in the world does honor your father and mother get to kings and priests and prophets? Well, the commentators who take it this way, and I agree with them, honoring your father and mother is submission to authority. And so as life in the land, what it looks like is submitting to governing authorities, whatever they would be. It's much like Paul's argument in Romans 13 to submit to governing authorities tied to this commandment. And so chapter 16 and 17, we see this conversation about judges in the land. This is the lesser leaders that are making judgments among the people regionally, and they were to follow justice and justice alone. They were to look to God to the standard. They were to thoroughly investigate claims, and they were to use wisdom and even appeal for help when they didn't know the answer. Now, those judges are different than the book of Judges. Judges? Uh, The book of Judges were sort of precursors to the Messiah who were raised up to save and deliver the people from enemy forces from time to time, like Samson or Ehud. He was left-handed. By the way, this week there was National Left-Handers Day, for those of you that are aware of that. So Ehud, you might go read about him. It's a pretty crazy story, not for, you know, maybe kids read it later because it's, you know, not quite PG, but uh, I'm left-handed. So it's a good day. Everyone's born right-handed, only the greatest overcome it. So there is that. So these judges in the land, they were leaders, they were rulers. And then in chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, we get to the king. Now Israel didn't have a king yet, but in verse 14, when you enter the land, chapter 17, which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, Like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, on and on. Now, the king that was promised, we actually saw it in Genesis 49 that the scepter will never depart from Judah. So this king was going to be from the line of Judah that God was promising. And the king is going to be chosen by God here in verse 15, And beyond all of this, Israel, though, was commanded to look not to this human king, but to God as their king, and they weren't ultimately to put trust in any man. Of course, all of this we know points to the Messiah. And here's the reality. How in the world could a descendant of David, of Judah rather, let me not get past the Pentateuch, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of Abraham be the king, and yet God also be the king? Well, it's going to take something miraculous like a hypostatic union, like the Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God and Son of Man, who's fully God and fully man, who's the Messiah. And so the Pentateuch is anticipating there's coming a day when God, Yahweh, will be king, and we're going to see this later in the Song of Moses, as well as someone who's a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. Well, it's this Messiah who's coming, and we know his name. His name is Jesus and we're in his kingdom, and his kingdom will never be shaken. Well, chapter 18 talks about the priesthood as leaders, verses 1 to 8, and we looked at this in Leviticus, and again last week a little bit, but again, I just want to say this is fulfilled in Christ. He took his place at the right hand of the Father after making purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 11 tells us. He intercedes for us, 1 John 2, in the midst of our sin, he's our advocate. He prays for our sanctification, John 17. 
and we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because he's our high priest and he ever lives to intercede for us. And even now, 1 Peter 2 says, because he's our high priest, he's our cornerstone. We're being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. This is what he's doing. And then finally, chapter 18 is this office of prophet, verses 9 to 22. And in verses 9 to 14, there's a number of restrictions to the prophets. They must not do a certain amount of things, and if they do, they're to be put to death. And it's interesting here that prophets were assumed, like Moses was a prophet. We had Melchizedek in Genesis that was a prophet. We had Balaam last week who was a false prophet. Now, the first time in Scripture that the office of prophet is talked about in detail, let's look at this, what it says. Verse 15 of chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore or I will die. And the Lord said to me, they've spoken well, and I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I speak to them all that I command him. Well, who is this talking about? Who is this prophet like Moses who's coming, who's going to speak the words of Yahweh? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this prophet, priest, king, you've heard this, this threefold office of Jesus. He's the ultimate king, he's the ultimate priest, and he's the ultimate prophet. And all of it was promised and shadowed and foreshadowed and given its type in the Pentateuch. And as Scripture unfolds itself, we see (coughs) that this one who's king is not just a descendant of Judah, he's a descendant of David. And he's going to rule and reign over the throne of David forever. He's not just a priest after the order of Leviticus, but Hebrews says he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's kind of a confusing long chapter in Hebrews chapter 8. But basically what he's saying is, hey, like you didn't know the beginning of, you didn't know where Melchizedek came from. He had no beginning, no end. He's, he just comes on the scene and leaves. The whole point of it is not that he's descended from Melchizedek, but that he holds his priesthood forever and it's a better priesthood. And as prophet, He's the one who comes and who speaks the words of God and does the works of God. And we're to hear his voice. In fact, isn't that what the Father says at his baptism? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not listen to Moses. Listen to him. And so the author of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 3 and he says, guess what? The guy who built the house, he who built the house has more glory than the house. Talking about Jesus is better than Moses. What does he mean? Jesus created Moses. He's God. He built the house. Moses is just the house. He's part of the house that God built. Jesus is the builder and the architect. He's the one who's the author and perfecter of our salvation. And so he's worthy of worship because he's better than everything in the old covenant. He's the fulfillment of it all. So, This is why Peter in Acts 3 says, oh yeah, Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater prophet. 
It's why Jesus speaks of himself in Luke 13 as a prophet and why in John 6, 14, after the people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. And John, the apostle who wrote the book of John, would say, yes, I put it in there because I wrote these things that by believing in them, you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. This is good news, beloved. You know why this is good news? We know the story. We have the answers. We're not like Israel in the wilderness wondering who is the Messiah? When's he gonna come? What's his name? What's it gonna be like? We know. His name is Jesus. And he came and he established his kingdom by dying for our sins in our place so that we could have his righteousness. He took our transgressions and nailed them to the cross the handwriting of requirements that was against us, and he removed them, taking them out of the way. And now what we have is we have the righteousness of Christ. It's this wonderful doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. And we see that if we tried to live the law, we're dead. We're under a curse, but God has delivered us, freed us from the curse of the law through Christ. So now we're saved not by works, but by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And when he saves us, he saves us to the uttermost because his kingdom will never be shaken. His priesthood will never end. And his word is always true. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no more prophecy to give. But we are redeemed from the curse of the law. Well, chapters 19 to 28 is a bit of a whirlwind, at least how I'm gonna handle it. These chapters cover the last five commandments. And so chapters 19 to 22 is an elaboration of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And in it, there's protection of innocent life. There's rules for warfare. There's laws regarding unsolved murders, as well as other issues of life and death. Chapters 22 and 23 are elaboration of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And in it, there's several laws regarding sexual purity and behavior inside of marriage and outside of marriage. Chapters 23 and 24, there's the elaboration of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And we see it bracketed by laws on human freedom regarding slavery and kidnappings. In chapters 24 and 25, there's an elaboration of the Ninth Commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness or lie. And there's a bunch of commands here to protect and preserve the reputation, dignity, and respect of the people in the community. And then in chapters 25 and 26, you shall not covet. There's laws reflecting the complexity of Israel, Israelite life by dealing with several issues tied to the concept of coveting, whether it's interfamily relationships, honesty, devotion to the Lord. Uh, turn over to chapter 26 because there's two ceremonies covered here first fruits and tithing in chapter 26 and here he says basically what is the antidote to coveting in this section he says that the antidote to covering is these to coveting rather is these offerings of first fruits and tithing Let's look at verse 13. You shall say before the Lord your God, 
I have removed the sacred portion from my house and also have given it to the Levites. The Levites were dependent upon the giving of the people to eat, to live, to have possessions. To the alien, to the orphan, to the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me, I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. Verse 18, the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he's made for praise and fame and honor and you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. What an antidote to coveting. You want to know the answer to coveting? Give. Isn't that what we hear in the New Testament? Let him who steals steal no longer but instead let him work with his hands so that he may give. And so here, this wisdom of God, and in chapter 26 then, at the end, uh, verses 16 to 19, I read 18 and 19. This is the summary of, of all of this exposition of the Ten Commandments, and when you hear this language of treasured people, it goes back to Exodus 19, that you'll be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured people for my own possession. And so there's these, these echoes of Exodus 19, and it ends with the emphasis on the ultimate purposes of God. Of course, it's conditioned upon if you obey. And the reality is, is they can't obey. And it's going to prove itself, but we're not quite there yet. Chapters 27 and 28, uh, there are this covenant ceremony given at Moab for the second generation, and there's blessings and cursings in chapters 27 and 28, the cursings of chapter 7, and man, every verse is like cursed, 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 cursed. And then uh, chapter 28 is the blessings. And, and what is Moses doing here? He's reminding the people of uh, the blessings are a reminder of the Garden of Eden, the enjoyment of God's good land to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And the curses are a reminder of the fall, that there's affliction and ultimately exile from the land. And it's prophetic in a way, isn't it? Because the people can't keep the law. And so they're going to fall under the curses rather than the blessings. And what they need is someone to keep it on their behalf. A Messiah, a hero. To keep it perfectly. To qualify as the one who could circumcise their hearts by the Spirit so that then they will love the Lord and live. So here you have the gospel in seed form right here in the Pentateuch. This is the only hope we have. Oh, but it's a great hope. We saw that in Numbers last week. And so we get to Moses' final words, chapters 29 to 34, and we get to this reality of the new covenant. So after all these cursings and blessings and the reality that the people can't keep this on their own, we see in chapter 29, verse 1, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. Now hold on, this is another covenant? This isn't the covenant at Sinai, at Horeb, at the mountain? This is another covenant? What's he talking about? Well, as we go on to chapter 30, we see that he's talking about an anticipation of the new covenant, a different covenant. But he says in verse 29, it's fascinating, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And I know some have taken this to just speak of God knowing secret things in general that we don't know, but in the context, 
what Moses is getting at is the secret things are the new covenant that he hasn't revealed yet. What the New Testament says is the mystery hidden for ages by God, but now revealed to us in these last days. And what is the mystery? That Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, that he's poured out his spirit and he's made Jew and Gentile one so that they're one shepherd with one flock and he's going to keep them forever. And that he's building them into a temple of God, a place where the spirit would dwell by faith fit for the presence of God. This is what he's promising and hoping, but Moses here says these are the secret things that belong to the Lord. Isn't that incredible? Moses is a prophet. We can't forget that. Well, chapter 30 gets into this future blessing. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 30, God's going to have compassion on his people who are scattered to the ends of the earth. We see that at verse 4, if you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. What a hope. So Moses says, oh, I know you're not going to keep the law. In fact, you're going to keep it so poorly, you're going to get scattered to the four winds. But God is faithful, and he's going to gather you back. And you're going to be more prosperous than even your fathers. And then what does he say in the very next verse? Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Not only is God going to bring them back, but when they're restored, he's going to give them a new heart that's circumcised. This is the promise of the new covenant. In Luke 2, Simeon, that faithful servant in the temple in Jerusalem who's a part of the old covenant he was still waiting for this it says in Luke 24 Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he's talking to the disciples they say we were the one who hoped we hoped he would be the Messiah and Jesus says oh slow to believe all that Moses and the prophets talked about and then what does it say beginning with Moses he showed them everything concerning himself See, the law is not going to be written on tablets of stone in the New Covenant. It's going to be written on the heart. In fact, verses 11 to 14, for this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? The word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it what an anticipation that the word of god would no longer be on tablets of stone in an ark of the covenant in the holy of holies where only the high priest could go once a year now it's going to be written on the heart when god by the spirit circumcises the hearts incredible and so moses gives his last words chapters 31 to 33 he provides for leadership in chapter 31 and the people are disobedient there in that chapter. And then he sings a song in chapter 32. And the focal point of the song, if you remember, the poetry always interprets the narrative. And the songs in the Pentateuch always point to Jesus, to the Messiah. Chapter 31, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And when Paul picks up on this in to the Corinthians and he says the rock that led him in the wilderness was Christ 
He wasn't talking about that rock that Moses struck with a staff. He's talking about the one Moses was singing to in chapter 32. Who was the rock, Yahweh, who led him in the wilderness? It was the Messiah, Jesus. He's already with them. But now, there, there will be a day in the future. He's the one who will usher in the new covenant and the circumcision of the heart through the Spirit. He's the one going to bring in the new Jerusalem, the ultimate temple city of which the new heavens and new earth will be a fit place for us as a kingdom of priests and God's presence among His people forever. He's the one who's going to make all things new. Moses then gives instructions for his death in chapter 32, and he gives a final blessing in chapter 33, which pictures a reversal of the fall, a picture of Eden restored. Look at verse 27 of chapter 33. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. This is a picture of Eden restored, God being in their midst, driving out all the enemies. It reminds me of Psalm 110 where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death in Revelation. And Jesus is going to cast death into the lake of fire. And he's going to make all things new. And by the end of the book, chapter 34, verses 10 to 12, we see that there is no prophet, verse 10, risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And what is Joshua? I assume it's Joshua uh, who's writing this after Moses' death. What is he saying? The Messiah hasn't yet come. We're still waiting. We're still hoping for that prophet to come. But we know who that prophet is. We know that he's come. And his name is Jesus. Now, because of this, the Pentateuch is ultimately all about the Messiah. This descendant of Eve, Genesis 2, 3.15, this descendant of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1-3, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, the descendant of Judah, Genesis 49, the scepter will never depart from his hand, the prophet, priest, and king like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, the one who will pour out his spirit on the people and circumcise their hearts, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It's why in John 5:46 Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Isn't that incredible? That is astounding. It should bring great hope to us, beloved. Everything lost in the fall is regained in Christ. Everything demanded by the law is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything foreshadowed in the old covenant finds its completion in Christ. We have all the answers and we have all the hope. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that Moses spoke about our Savior and he